We've been asking ourselves the question, who is Jesus? And we've taken some real time to explore the Gospel of John as we've answered this question, who is Jesus? The form of study that we have employed is called Christology. It simply put is the study of the person of Jesus Christ, the position of the Son in the Godhead, what is Jesus' role, what is His position within the Godhead, and then how did Jesus carry out His ministry and His life while here on earth? There is much for us in His actions. There are many things, obviously, for us in the words that He spoke. And we've asked ourselves the question, who is Jesus? This will be the fourth part of that answer. Uh, very quickly, let me give you a few of these that we have looked at. So far, we have asked the question, who is Jesus? And we have seen Him as the visible image of God. Secondly, we saw Him as the agent of creation. Thirdly, we saw Him as the sustainer. Fourthly, we saw Him as the head of the church, if you remember from that message and then one of my favorites, we have seen him as the one who has come. He was born in Bethlehem, but we also saw him as the one who is coming again. We saw him as the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And then the last time we explored this thought, we became very personal with the story of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus whom Jesus loved, who died in a city right outside of Jerusalem about 1.8 miles east of the Mount of Olives in Bethany. And we saw Jesus as the reason that Lazarus should have been in the house. That because of their knowledge, the capacity of Jesus and what he could do, and by their own testimony, Mary and Martha, they both believed that Jesus was able to heal Lazarus. And even Martha said, even now, I believe that my brother, though he is dead, you can do something about it. And we looked at what our expectations of life and reason are. And the point of all of this really is to draw you back in line with a correct depiction of who Jesus really is. We must demand of ourselves that our understanding and our knowledge and our picture, if you will, of Jesus that we carry out through our lives is not defined by man's opinion, that it's not defined by even emotion, that it's not defined by something you want to be true as it pertains to the Son of God, but rather that every understanding, every emotion, every principle about the character, the nature, and the position of Jesus Christ as the Son in the Godhead, that every bit of that be defined from Holy Scripture, from the Bible. There is a war, there is an onslaught that is taking place against the authority and really the validity of Scripture in the day and hour that we're living. We've talked about that in detail. There is a war against the Word. There are scholars and skeptics and even so-called pastors who are even today standing in pulpits and proclaiming that we need to deconstruct our faith. 
that we need to deconstruct the Word of God, that we don't need to hold on to the Word of God as the Word of God, but rather it's simply a nice book with some stories. But you don't have to pay attention to anything, especially in Genesis. You don't have to believe the miracles of Exodus. You don't have to listen to the law of Deuteronomy. And that is nothing but a lie of the enemy himself, of the devil that wars against you and against our families. That is Satan's greatest ploy. That is his greatest tactic is to rob you of confidence and authority given to you by Scripture and that he would plant seeds of doubt as to the authority and the authenticity of Scripture. We must prepare ourselves for that and we must ask ourselves, who is Jesus based on Scripture? The holy, blessed book, the Word of God. So we've seen these eight things, these eight points, these eight characteristics of our Lord and our Savior. But today we will look at a powerful encounter between Jesus Christ, our Lamb, our Savior, our Sustainer. And we will see Him today as the evangelist. You'll see Jesus today as the evangelist. And you say, well, Pastor, I've never heard Him called an evangelist before. I find a story here in John 4 that proves not only that Jesus was an evangelist, but that He laid a perfect pattern for your life and for my life as it pertains to our efforts in sharing hope, truth, and love, even with people who do not necessarily want to hear the truth of hope and love. Let's turn to John 4, go to the first verse. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, then John the Apostle gives us a little bit of context there. He says, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to a parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being weary in his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Then cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. And then again, some context and parentheses there in verse 8 from the Apostle John. He says, For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith a woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knowest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, uh, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, pointing obviously to the well of Jacob. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of springing up into everlasting life. A well of water springing up into everlasting life. She responds and says, The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, for a few minutes, 
Lord, we pray that you would bind distraction. Lord, that you would quiet the hearts of people. Lord, that you would focus our minds and our attention on the Word of God. And Lord, that you'd give liberty to preach and to teach the Word of God without fear and without favor. Lord, hide me behind the cross. Use me as a clean vessel. God, to deliver what you've put in my heart. Lord, I pray now that you would open the ears to hear the Word. And God, that you would inspect our hearts as it pertains to what you want to say here today to us through your Word. It's in Jesus' name. The church prayed. Amen. And amen. Let's put a few things into perspective here and give you just a little bit of background as it pertains to two things, and that is the location that Jesus was headed into Samaria and then the fact that he was leaving Judea. And then we want to look at what Samaritans are, the people who inhabited Samaria. We will not belabor this, but I do need you to understand exactly what's taking place. John the Baptist and Jesus had been teaching and had been preaching and had been making disciples and baptizing, and they're making great claims about the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, they're talking and preaching about repentance and how that everyone, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter your station in life, that you are to repent, to turn of your wicked ways and uh, claim Jesus to be the Christ. And more than likely, Jesus wanted to avoid any possible issue at this point with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, who were very aware of what he was doing. We know that they were aware because they were already irritated with Jesus' forerunner, his cousin, John the Baptist. They're already upset with John the Baptist for what he's been teaching and preaching. And now the Apostle John tells us that Jesus is making even more disciples than John the Baptist. And so they are rocking and they're shaking the boat, if you will, of tradition. They are rocking and shaking the boat of what's allowed and what's looked at and what's understood to be allowed within the rule book of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. But there was a very important thing that you must understand that was mentioned here, and it was the fact that he was leaving Judea and headed towards Samaria. He's going north. But this going north was of great Consequence, And it was not a coincidence that he was heading that way. God in divine mercy and grace set this thing up for Jesus to make his way from where he was to this woman who was at the well. Now Samaria, let's talk about it, understanding that this was not a normal route for Jesus to take. The Samaritan people, the Samaritans that inhabited Samaria... There were really uh, many tense things, a lot of pressure between these two groups of people. The Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. I want you to think of somebody that you would run into at the grocery store that you probably wouldn't talk to. You say, oh, I don't have anybody like that in my life. Oh, yes, you do. Uh-huh. You went to high school. Some of you are still in high school. But here we are, and and... Jesus is heading as a Jew into a place where maybe he's not even that welcome. Josephus, the Jewish historian, proves to us in what he wrote that most of the time Jews would not even take those routes. They would not use those roads unless it was a very special uh, feast or a very special moment on the calendar. But Jesus just says, I'm headed this way. Way And he heads towards a city called Sychar. Now, the split that took place, uh, this is after Solomon's rule. A king named King Omri named the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. The split 
He named that capital Samaria. The Assyrians had come. They had captured a lot of people. They were moving people in and out. And the long story that you can find in 2 Kings and 1 Kings is that the the Assyrians create this new culture, if you will, in Samaria. You have a lot of Jews that stayed. And then you have uh, people from all over the place that are uh, finding their home now in Samaria. What happens is you, through marriage and, and intermarriage, this melting pot of people. And a lot of these Jews had fled to northern Iraq, modern day northern Iraq, but a lot of them had stayed. But those that stayed somehow got distracted. They got into a place of theology and doctrine that they did not belong in. And what they did is they said that nothing past the Pentateuch, nothing past Moses was valid. And so they created their own idea of who God was. They created their own idea of worship. And instead of ignoring God and continuing in the faith, they locked up their brakes. They said, this is who we are and what we are, and we refuse to change. And so the religious Jews who saw them as pagan, who saw them as uh, heretics, they really did not care for each other. And so Jesus is already going into a place of tension. He's already going into a place where maybe he is not welcome. The fact that he's purposely moving towards Sychar says a lot about the story. You have to understand that the movement of Jesus. Now remember, Jesus is in their eyes, and I'm talking about the Jews, a rabbi, a teacher, a master. For some, he has already become more than that, and he is Messiah. But for the most part, the identity of Christ at this point in his ministry is that of teacher, of rabbi. And for a Jewish rabbi to take the northern routes and the northern roads when it was not supposed to happen and go to Sychar is a really big deal. And it's proof that God in grace and in mercy and in his sovereign will and plan will do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases to reach even one person for the glory of God. And so Jesus leaves Judea, verse 3 tells us, and he heads towards Sychar. Now, let's talk about this woman that we found at the well. This Samaritan woman. And Jesus now has asked her for a drink. Do do we realize the jaw-dropping atomic words that Jesus just let come out of his mouth? Number one, what is this Jewish rabbi doing at this well? And number two, what is Jesus doing talking to a woman who's unaccompanied? And what is Jesus talking doing talking to not only a woman who's unaccompanied, but a Samaritan woman who is unaccompanied. This is the most egregious moment of inappropriate conversation in the eyes and in the minds of the Jewish audience that was not there. If his disciples had have been there, we may not have this story for us to consume. If you'll notice, Jesus sends his disciples into Sychar to buy dinner. And how many disciples does it really take for us to get supper on the table? He sent all of them into Sychar. Already we're there and now the disciples are going to buy meat from the Samaritans and now Jesus is at this well with this woman. A very interesting thing is taking place. But we've got to understand the identity and the purpose of this woman and who she really is to understand how powerful this story really is. So let's look firstly at the Samaritan woman and her identity as a Samaritan. Look what she says in verse number 9. 
Jesus has asked her for a drink. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? And then the last part of that verse says, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. If you were to explore that phrase, have no dealings, in the Greek you would find language that indicates that the Jews and the Samaritans would not even share utensils. They would not drink out of the same cup. Even if you boil the water and wash it, they would not use the same utensils. Neither would they use the same latrine or place to relieve oneself. They can't use the same plates. They can't use the same cups. And they won't go to the bathroom in the same place. They have no dealings. And this woman is caught off guard that this Jewish rabbi is asking of her a drink. She even asks him and says, the water that you're going to draw, the living water, what utensil will you use? Which means that Jesus was completely, totally dependent on the utensils that the Samaritan woman had and was going to take a drink from this woman. We have no dealings with each other. The Jewish definition of a Samaritan is often that of an animal or a lesser human being, a lesser creature. So understand that for her to be not only a woman in this day and this age, but a Samaritan is a powerful indication of what's really taking place at this well. We see her identity as a Samaritan, but now we have to dig into her past. And the Bible has done that for us. We can have even a more clear picture of who she is. We see her as a Samaritan, but now you must see her as a sinner. She is a Samaritan, yes. And yes, the tension is there. But now see this woman as a sinner. We get very personal here. And we have to see her for what she is, a sinner. And I submit to you that this aspect of the story is more important than the tension between her and the Jews as a Samaritan. More important than the tension between her and Jewish people is the tension between her and God as a sinner. More important than what people thought of her was what God saw her for. And God sees her clearly here as a sinner. Go to verse number 15. Jesus has offered her this water. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this living water that Jesus had offered that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And then look here how Jesus changes this entire conversation. He changes the tone of this entire encounter. Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. You see, the woman did not realize that the water that Jesus was offering her had nothing to do with her chores of coming to the well and getting water to take back to the house. But rather, Jesus was interested in the spiritual condition of this woman more than he was concerned with the physical condition of this woman. And then he tells her, he repeats to her what she can't possibly fathom that he would know. 
How does this stranger, this rabbi, this Jew, how could he possibly know anything about me? And then Jesus proves his supernatural knowledge of this woman at the well and says, woman, call thy husband. She says, I have no husband. And he responds with, yes, I know you've had five husbands. And now you're in such a place that the man that you're living with is not even your husband. So yes, see her as a Samaritan. Understand the tension between Samaritans and Jews. But now see her for what she really is. A sinner. A fallen creature. The Adamic nature. What you are and what I am apart from Christ. And here she finds herself, yes, in this moment of tension with a Jew, but even more importantly now, she's in a moment of tension with God. Because the Bible teaches clearly, and even the Old Testament held this to be true, that the wages of sin is death. You say, well, how cruel that is. How harsh this moment is. God sent Jesus, His Son, to Sychar to tell this woman that you need something more than you possess. And He offered it to her in the person of His own Son. This changes the entire conversation. This changes everything about this encounter. And He reveals to her what He couldn't possibly know. And it so shocks her, she responds... And she says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. There's something supernatural happening here. There's something scary happening. How can this stranger know who I am and what I've done? That I've had husband after husband, and now I'm living with a man that's not even my husband. You see her identity as a Samaritan. You understand everything about her past as a sinner. Christ Repeats it back to her. But now see the perception of other people. See the perception of other people. Go to verse number 6. There's something here that Scripture has for us. It says, Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied in his journey, sat thus on the well. Let me hit the brakes right there and run a very quick rabbit trail. For people who say that Jesus was not all God and not all man, may I offer to you this verse and ask you how the deity of our Lord and Savior, the God, Jesus, how He would become weary and how He would become thirsty. The God of Jesus, the Jesus portion, the, the deity, the divinity of our Lord and Savior would never become weary. He would never become tired. He is God. He can't get tired. He can't get weary. And He can't get thirsty. But Jesus came to earth for you so that you could have access to a story where he had become all God and all man and even the Son of God would become thirsty and weary and sit on a well. And the church said, Amen. Jesus was all God and all man. And his humanity and his divinity is on display here. Continuing in verse 6, Jesus is weary from his journey and sat on the well. And it was about the sixth hour the sixth hour being noon, the way the Jews told time with the sun up and sun down events. This was noon time. And what is off here is that tradition teaches that the women would go in a group before the sun was up in the sky and before it got really hot. 
And that together all of the women of the village would co-labor together and go retrieve water. Further study shows Josephus teaches, uh, he teaches here that there was even possibly other wells closer to Sychar. There were other places this woman could have gone to retrieve water. Yet she's here at Jacob's well and she's there at midday by herself. No other woman is accompanying her from the Samaritan village. No friend has come with her to the well. And Jesus has left the disciples in Sychar to go grocery shopping. And now Jesus has this woman at this well who not only is a Samaritan and a sinner, but she's also an outcast of her own people. She's by herself. This woman should have had a group with her. She should have had a friend drawing water with her. But she's there as a sinner, a Samaritan, and an outcast. You must see that she is those three things. But you also must see her response to Jesus. She thought that he was getting ready to solve the problem of going to fetch water. To go get the physical needs of her home. And understand that this woman, yes, is a sinner and a Samaritan, an outcast. But also understand that she is an immoral woman. She's an immoral woman. She's ignorant. She's uneducated. She's unclean. You say, that's harsh. No, it's the reality of the nature of mankind. This is the wage of sin. It's a slow fade. It's a progressive falling away where your nature takes over and you do what you want to do, how you want to do, in any way that pleases your flesh. This woman is a perfect example of human nature. And now she's had husband after husband after husband. And now she's at a point to where she's so indifferent to her sin. So indifferent to her morality. So indifferent to her uncleanliness. That she's at a place where she'll live with a guy and not even worry about the marriage ceremony. This is a sinful woman. And if it had not been for this encounter, her future was set. This was just going to be another revolving door of pain and brokenheartedness and the identity of not only a Samaritan, but as a Samaritan who's an outcast. But this encounter with Jesus would change everything about her life and it would change her eternity forever and ever and ever. Look how Jesus responds to all these facts that we now know that the Bible shows us about this woman. He responds to her identity. Jesus responds to her past. He responds to the perception of other people. And he does it by just being there. He asked for a drink. He was willing to share the utensil of a Samaritan. Jesus is already going against the grain of what's normal, of what's expected for the sake of this Samaritan woman. Jesus was comfortable being seen at noon with an outcast. What if a Pharisee would have walked by? What if someone from Samaria would have come from Sychar and saw this Jewish rabbi talking to one of the women of the village? And not only is it one of the women of the village, but it's the outcast of the village. Has that Jewish rabbi lost his mind? What's he doing talking to one that we won't even talk to? Do you see now the pressure created in this story? All the tension that's pulling, all of the human emotion that's on display. Jesus was going against the grain of everything that was normal. 
Everything that was expected and everything that was known. But here comes the real indication. The real window into the heart of your Lord and Savior Jesus. If you're saved, you're born again, you're on your way to heaven and you love Jesus, say Amen. Amen. This is a window into the heart of the One who died for you. This is a glimpse into the very love that He has for you. You see, up to this point, there's something very special about this. John the Baptist, the forerunner, had made the statement, had made the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that's been promised. John the Apostle has done the same. He has proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that will rescue and redeem Israel, the hope of every man. Those statements have come out of John the Baptist's mouth and they've come out of the mouth of John the Apostle, but yet has that statement come out of the mouth of the Messiah himself. He's yet to make the proclamation, I am the Messiah. I am He. I am the One. I'm the Chosen, the Seed of David. It's me. He's yet to make that clear from His own mouth. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been making disciples. But He's not yet made that claim publicly that He's the Messiah. That He's the One. Instead of Jesus going to Jerusalem to where all the religious people were, Instead of Jesus waiting to have a council of the Sanhedrin or have 150 Pharisees and Sadducees in council together in the temple, instead of going to the Mount of Olives with thousands of people listening to what He was getting ready to say, Jesus waited and He chose perfectly in His sovereignty. He waited to make the announcement to the outcast of Samaria. An audience of one was all that was required for the Messiah to self-identify. I don't need the Sanhedrin. I don't need the Pharisees. I don't need the Sadducees. I don't need the captain of the temple. I just need this wicked, vile, pagan woman who will sit on the well and listen to the truth. Verse number 25, the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. And when He is come, He will tell us all things. And then Jesus changes redemptive history forever and forever and forever. And He speaks these words to the woman, I that speak unto thee am He. And He makes the claim to the woman at the well, I'm the one you're talking about. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one that Moses talked about. I'm the one that the prophets that your people rejected have been talking about. And I'm sitting in front of you. Outcast Samaritan sinner woman, and I bring to you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all people, including you. And he makes the claim I am he. No doubt, this woman who could have never expected it, who could have never come to the point in her mind where she dots all the I's and crosses all the T's and puts together this formula where this guy who's just come up to the well is the Messiah. But it's exactly what happened. And in that moment, Jesus took upon himself the role of the evangelist. Who is Jesus in this moment? He is the evangelist. He was not the first evangelist. God had ordained that John, his cousin, be the forerunner to begin the proclamation, the evangelizing of the people. But now Jesus is making a statement here as an evangelist. And what he did at the well that day sent reverberations and ripple effects into even today. Right now, 
If we were to watch the rock hit the water, then even today in this room on the, on the tide, you can see the ripple effect when Jesus spoke to the woman there at the well. And even to outcasts and people that you think will, will never listen to the truth. People that will never understand hope. People that will always reject the love of Christ. Even those people are affected because of what Jesus did that day. At Jacob's well. You say, well, how was he an evangelist? Number one, by demonstrating his love and understanding of people right where they are. Jesus did not tell this woman, you've got to go to Sychar. You've got to renounce your old faith. You got to get cleaned up. We need to get you some Jewish clothing. And then I'll tell you the good news. You hearing me clearly today? He said, uh, let me just tell you right now in the condition in which I find you here at the well about hope, about love, and the fact that you are broken, destitute, and bound for eternity without God, but offer you hope that only I can offer. You cannot expect people to go get squeaky clean before they come to Christ. He wants them dirty. He wants them nasty. He wants them in all of their wickedness and vile ways. And in that, he gets glory by saving them right where they are. A drunk, a prostitute, an abortionist, no matter who it is, no matter where they live, no matter what side of town, no matter the color of their skin, Jesus can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. And it comes with no strings attached to hear the truth. Quit telling me that Christianity is for white people. My Jesus wasn't even white. Quit telling me it's reserved for the upper class and the elites. It's for whosoever may call upon the name of the Lord. And even to the outcast, the low center of Sychar. It was truth that applied to her. And he did it by showing that his love of people was greater than anything we could understand. Secondly, he did it by proving his love for mankind involved no boundaries. She's a woman. She's from Samaria. She's unclean. She's uneducated. She's a sinner. And yet Jesus sat on the well and talked with her. There's no boundaries for him. The boundaries that maybe even the disciples would have brought to the conversation, Jesus absolutely obliterates them. Are you paying attention to your Messiah, your Lord, your Savior, and His actions? He, he, he went against the grain. He did ministry, as Tim Brady says, that raises eyebrows. What are you doing? She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's unaccompanied. What are you thinking? She needs to hear the truth. And the boundaries that other people had for her, Jesus just absolutely crushed them all the way to get a drink of water and to tell her the truth, that he loved her enough to stop at the well. And then lastly, Jesus was an evangelist by showing the contrast to the limitations of human love. The limitations of human love. You see, Jesus exhibited his character of divine love. And divine love is indiscriminate love. It's love that chooses and does and pleases at its will. You can't make God do anything. He does it at His pleasure. 
It was God's sovereign will, his sovereign choice at his sovereign time to send his son to that well. And when it's somebody's time to be born into the kingdom, God in love, divine love, holy love, love that has no limit, love that has no expectation other than radical, undeniable, powerful, all-encompassing love that overtook this woman. It was love. And what you're watching happening here in John 4, this is the live action drama. This is the story. This is the truth. This is the essence of John 3, 16 for you to see lived out in Jesus Christ, the evangelist. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world. That word world in Greek is cosmos. Cosmos meaning mankind, meaning all people. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the cosmos. That's everybody. For God so loved the world that He sent Jesus, His Son, that whosoever believeth in Him that's Americans, that's Costa Ricans, that's Canadians, that's Cubans, it's Croatians, it's Filipinos, it's Chinese. It's any category of people you want to stick in that box. Whosoever will. He said, I sent my son. And I can't help but think what that woman, Brother Ken from Sychar, was thinking to herself. Low in her sin, low in her condition, low in her state, no self-esteem. She feels dirty. She feels nasty. She feels unworthy. She's had multiple sexual partners. She's living with a guy that's not her husband. We're in this filthy, revolving door of human ways. And then the Messiah, the Son of God, steps into her situation. And that's exactly what God did for you when He saved you. You see, I'm no different than the Samaritan sinner. I was no different at 15 years old in this old building sitting on the right hand side on the second row, the second seat in. I was just as lost and just as dirty and just as undone as this woman at the well. But God the Holy Ghost sent something to come by my way and prick my heart and say, Winston, today's the day. You need a Savior. You need a Savior. And His name is Jesus. For God so loved the world. My question to you today, church, for all those people just a minute ago that said amen, what is your responsibility? What is your responsibility? Or better yet, who are your Samaritans? Who are the people that you have put in a box and you have labeled them those of Sychar who have no hope. And you've written them off and you say there's no way they'll ever believe. There's no way they will ever understand. There's no way they could ever love and follow Jesus the way that I do. You see, when we build those boxes and we put people in those boxes, we're no different than the Pharisees. We're no different than even the disciples who were not mature enough to have an audience at the well until Jesus had already finished business. So who are 
You're Samaritans. And if Jesus in this moment was an evangelist and we're all called to be salt, to be light, if we are Christians, followers of Jesus, then would it be a safe bet to say that we should emulate, duplicate, and, and, and respond to people in the same way that Jesus does? I think so. I think the expectation of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that you are salt of the earth, that you are the light of the world, all of those things that Jesus put on you. Listen to me now. Pay attention. Don't allow any distraction to rob you of this. Listen to me now. There is an expectation that God has placed upon you. Answer me this in your heart. Where is the physical body of Jesus today? Is he in Spartanburg making his way up to the capital today? No. Is he in California making his way to Oregon? The physical body of Christ? No. The New Testament teaches that Jesus ascended to heaven. If I go, I will prepare a place and I will come again. So what then is to be the representation? Who then is to be at the well sharing hope and love and truth? Well, in the divine design that God established before he made worlds, he chose you, the church, to be the physical representation of hope, of truth, and love by being salt and light to lost and dying people. That task has been laid on us. Who are your Samaritans? How do we evangelize a place like Asheville, North Carolina and what it's become? What do I do with downtown? What do I do with the pagan worship that happens on Friday nights in a drum circle downtown Asheville? How do I respond to that wickedness? I do it like Jesus did. How do I respond to those who are ensnared in the homosexual community? The pitiful souls who are trapped in this vile wickedness called transgenderism. How do I respond to such vile, wicked aggression? I do it like Jesus did. And how do I tell people who may even spit in my face, reject the truth, and maybe even hate my God? How am I an evangelist to them? How do I share hope? I do it like Jesus did. My job is not to correct the sinful nature of men. My job is to not make noise about how vile and wicked they are. My job is to make noise about the Messiah. Hey, you don't have to go that way. Hey, you don't have to live that lifestyle. The wages of sin is death. There is hope. Hey, there's hope. His name's Jesus. He's the Messiah. And He's already said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. You can live differently. Because eternity is coming for us all. So how do we respond in days like this? We pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. And now it's on us to be the ones sitting on the wall at the well. Pointing to hope and to truth. You see, when we put people in those boxes and we write them off, we're playing God. What do you do with people like Antifa? 
What do you do with open communists that hate our country and want to destroy it? You just love them like Jesus did. A sinner, a Samaritan, an outcast, unclean, uneducated, ignorant. But praise God, she's now a child of the King. And this encounter with Jesus changes everything about this lady's life and her eternity. And the Bible gives us the result of Jesus' evangelistic effort. Go to the 28th verse. I love this. This is when somebody gets saved and they get the can't help it, as granddaddy would call it. It said, then the woman left her water pot. She left her water pot. No longer did the physical need for water trump what was being said about her physical condition. She got a taste of the living water. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, what boldness. She's, she's left with her water pot, an unclean outcast, and now she's coming back with no water pot, having tasted of the living water, and she's being a living testimony to the men in Sychar and saying, come and see. Look what she says. She said, come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? Then they went out of the city and come and came unto him. Go to verse 39. We'll finish this. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that I ever did. The Jewish roots of the Samaritans that could not be helped. They needed signs and wonders and miracles just like their Jewish brothers did. And God saved this little girl at the well so she could go back into Sychar and tell the men of her city, I've met Messiah, come and meet him. And through one moment of going against the grain, one moment of saying and speaking the truth in love, Jesus saves one woman so that many can come to Christ and he did it in a way that would not make sense to the others around him. This is Jesus Christ the evangelist. Miss Amber, you come to the piano as we close our service. So now my question comes to you. Who are you burdened for? Who are the Samaritans that you are taking the truth to? Who are the people you weep over and cry over and beg God to open their eyes? You say, well, no one, Pastor. May I offer this in all love. If you don't have a burden for lost people, you can't be right with God. I'm sorry, but you can't be right with God. God's called you to be salt. He's called you to be light. He's called you to be the testimony. He's called you to be the witness. You've seen the example. This isn't Ralph Sexton Ministries. It's not Winston Parrish, the pastor. This is the Holy Scripture, the Word of God. And you see now how Jesus has responded to the Samaritans. How will you respond? Will you just come pray and ask God for a burden? Some of you don't have a burden for other people because you've not asked God to put the burden in your heart. Some people have dirty hands and you can't have a burden and have hidden sin. And we're never going to see the womb of the church open. You'll never see that breath of revival that God could send until the people get clean, the people get a burden, and we're willing to go to the well. Where is your well? You know who the Samaritans are. They're your friends, they're your families, they're your co-workers. But, but where is the well? 
It's here in Asheville. It's in Madison County. It's in Yancey County. It's at your job. It's at your school. It's maybe even at the family dinner table with people who do not believe. You have a Samaritan and you have a well. Now will you come and ask God to equip you and give you what you need to do what Jesus did and speak and preach and live the truth in love in front of those who need him most desperately. The altars are open. Miss Amber, you sing.